the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the day after Easter show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, um, church questions, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything will be hands-free, and you'll be connected to our studio producer. Hey, thanks for tuning in. This must going to be a, a good show today because we were having connection problems right up to the last second. But we are live, and we would love your input and phone calls. I'd love to hear about your Easter uh, services. Do, do people get saved? Um, what your thoughts were? We had a wonderful day here yesterday. It's a great weekend. We have a Good Friday service, uh, which is always very special and uh, um, packed house um, Friday and three times yesterday. It really, really was a good day. And I've been thinking about how blessed we are to be loved by God to, to such a degree that on Good Friday, he was willing to take the punishment that our sins deserved. And then because he didn't stay dead on what we celebrate is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, He rose from the dead. He's alive. Our our worship team, what a wonderful job they did. Pastor Elaine had to keep telling people, hey, you're in the right church because the people are in suits. We do that on on, uh, Easter Sunday. And um, um, they sang a song, uh, Hope is Alive Today, was one of the songs that they sang. And uh, it just fits so perfectly into the to the studies that I was giving yesterday. And it really, really was a great day. Uh, I cried like a baby uh, during first service. I, I know it's coming because it's the one song I insist on. Uh, Jossie gets to sing the uh, uh, the song um, My Redeemer Lives. And boy, did it hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday. I was so emotional and just so filled with gratitude uh, for what God has done. It was also kind of neat watching Paula sing on stage yesterday as well. So I hope you had a great, great day. A quick reminder, and then we'll get to questions. Um, uh, Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we've got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies. Pastor Ken is a little under the weather. Please keep him in your prayers. So uh, Dr. Pastor Peter Paley is going to be uh, doing the men's study tonight. Paula will be uh, heading the ladies' study tonight. And, of course, uh, Pastor Matthew and Pastor Chris will be here for the junior high and high schoolers um, as well. So that starts at 7 o'clock. And, of course, ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com. 
Okay, let's get to some questions while we await some phone calls. Uh, the first one is from our mobile app from Lynette, who's quickly becoming my friend. I love the fact, Lynette, that you are spending so much time in Revelation. Her question is this, if Revelation 4.1 is the rapture, then where is Jesus, the clouds, the archangel, the trumpet, and signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars? Um, a couple of things, and there's there's some things I'm thinking maybe you've got confused, Lynette. But remember, John is is experiencing a vision. After this, Revelation chapter 4.1 uh, begins, the, the Greek words are meta tauda. And after this, and John is caught up in heaven. So John's vision is not the rapture of the church, but it is representative of or symbolic of the rapture of the church. And from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, until we get to Revelation chapter 19, there's never again a mention of the church in the entire book of Revelation. So uh, uh, Jesus, of course, uh, during the the Great Tribulation, is uh, seated at the right hand of God. Um, the the Church, of course, is in heaven with Jesus during that Great Tribulation. So that's all that's going on. Revelation four one marks the prophetic beginning of things not yet happened uh, in the Book of Revelation, and that's when John. John is caught up in the air. And um, so it's not a literal rapture. It's just symbolic. John John wouldn't have understood anything about the rapture of the church. Um, so regarding the other part, the archangel, the trumpet, um, remember this is all highly symbolic language. The trumpet is not a literal trumpet. Um, the archangel um, that we see, the angels that we see throughout the book of Revelation, um, John's not experiencing that firsthand. He's just caught up into the heavens and he is taking his place there, figuratively speaking, Lynette, with the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, I think what you've got may be confused when you talk about the sun, the signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. I think you're confusing the signs that Jesus spoke about, uh, the signs that Joel originally prophesied. Uh, and those are signs of the Great Tribulation. They're not signs of the rapture of the church at all. They're signs of the Great Tribulation. So the church is not going to see the signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, we're going to be taken out of here, and then those things are going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that's simply the day that Jesus comes back. Um, actually, the, 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 the day of the Lord means all of the Great Tribulation. That's when the judgment of God is poured out. But remember, Jesus doesn't come back until Revelation chapter 19. So there's there's no... Uh, the, the rapture and the second coming of Jesus are two completely distinct and separate events. Uh, the rapture of the church, Jesus doesn't come here. He calls us up to be with him uh, on the, the judgment of the Great Tribulation eventually leading to Jesus' return in Revelation chapter 19. Well, that's when all the signs and the wonders are going to be as originally prophesied by Joel and then um, uh, spoken of by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. So, Lynette, good question. Thank you very, very much. And I hope you're enjoying Revelation as much as I am. And incidentally, on Friday, I'm going to be closing out Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to talk um, about the Millennial Kingdom. We've been talking about that from our study last time. Um, but, but we don't get a lot of details about the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, we know when it is. We know what's going to happen uh, in terms of Jesus ruling and reigning. But we're given very few details at all about what it's going to look like, um, what the earth is going to look like uh, during that 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. And I'm going to take some time going through the Old Testament scriptures uh, this Friday night, and we're going we're gonna to get as clear a picture as we possibly can about the Millennial Kingdom. Um, of Christ. So I'm excited about that. You know, it is interesting to me that there are things that we don't really get a lot of details on. 
we're going to rule and reign with Jesus, Lynette. I don't know exactly what that means, other than we're going to be instruments of judgment. Um, uh, we're, we're going to judge fallen angels. We know that. But we're not told what our job is going to be. We're not told where we're going to be on this earth, but we're going to be in this renewed earth. Uh, that's one of the things. I also find it interesting, uh, in light of yesterday's uh, Resurrection Sunday services, that we're not given any details at all about the resurrection itself. We get the reporting that it happened, that the tomb was empty, but there's no detail whatsoever about what occurred or what it looked or felt like as it occurred. And uh, the same thing is true um, of, of some of these things as well. So I hope that helps, Lynette. Thank you very, very much. Here is our question anonymously to our email from our email inbox. And here she says, I was wondering if masks would be equated to circumcision uh, and how Paul handles circumcision. He did not submit. By the way, anonymous, Paul was circumcised. He makes it very, very clear. Circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin um, um, as to uh, uh Legalistic righteousness, faultless. I mean, uh, he was as Jewish as as it gets. So uh, he himself was circumcised. He didn't require that Titus be circumcised. But he did, you'll remember, require that Timothy be circumcised. And it was a, a voluntary decision Timothy made. But Paul's basically saying, if you want to take over from me, if you want to, to follow in the steps of my ministry, then you have to be able to minister to Jews. And because his mother was a Jewess, a Jews wouldn't accept him unless he was circumcised. So uh, he did, Paul did, when it enhanced his ministry, he did have Timothy submit to being circumcised. So let me go back to the question. When mask wearing is compulsory... The excuse is that if you love your neighbor, you will submit to mask wearing. This is the second commandment that Jesus gave, to love thy neighbor as thyself, making this seem like a Christian issue and possibly a similar salvation issue to circumcision. Is this a salvation issue? Uh, Anonymous, by no stretch of the imagination, is wearing a mask a salvation issue uh, any more than circumcision is a salvation issue. Uh, it, it isn't a salvation issue for um, uh, Jews of old. It's not a circumcision issue, certainly for Gentiles, or a salvation uh, issue for, for Gentiles. Uh, and and why you're comparing it with masks, I'm a little unsure. But let me say a couple of things. First, uh, it, it really frustrates me when people say, well, we're wearing masks uh, because we've chosen to love our neighbors. That's not loving your neighbor. A mask has no value whatsoever, has no prohibitive value protecting your neighbor from uh, being catching COVID or anything else that you've got. Uh, if that were the case, every time you have a cold, you'd have to have a mask on. Every time you have the flu, you'd have a mask on. But, but, but that's just, I think that was the reason given at the start of the pandemic for churches closing um, churches like ours would be open, other churches closed. Well, don't you love your neighbor? And of course we love our neighbor, but we love our neighbor enough to make sure they have the opportunity to go to church if they want to. So that was just a, a, a rather sophomoric excuse um, to to submit to mask wearing. Now, here's, I think, a real simple rule, Anonymous, and this is the law of love in action. Uh, if you are invited to somebody's house, or if you're invited to somebody's business, um, then you, in love, obeyed the rules of that house or that business. You know, there's no point in getting angry. I hate wearing masks, but, you know, if I'm a guest in somebody's home, then I'm going to do what they say. Um, you know, it's, to me, anonymous, like going into homes, and you'll you'll find some homes, you open the front door, and all in the hallway, there's shoes everywhere. Uh, because people are taking off their shoes. People don't want shoes in their house. Well, it would be rude of me if, if I went to somebody's house. They said, please remove your shoes. And I said, no, I don't think that's necessary. So you just you just be obedient. You do what you're asked to do as a guest. 
The same thing would be true in a church. If 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 a business or a church requires that you wear a mask, you you can stay home or you can go to a church that doesn't require those masks. But there's nothing about wearing a mask that would would have any validity at all on our salvation. So um, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. But give people who choose differently than you do the grace and the freedom to make their own choices just the way you want choices. It's simply not true that we're loving our neighbor by wearing a mask. Uh, it's it's uh, makes no sense at all. Uh, we don't love our neighbor based on what we wear or don't wear. Uh, and it it's just, um, I think, a sign of the times. You know, people don't really um, think things through. So somebody invites me to their home and they want me to wear a mask, I will. Um, uh, if a business wants me to wear a mask, I probably won't go to that business. But those are the freedoms that I have. And... Um, the excuse that loving thy neighbor is the reason you're wearing a mask. I don't think, certainly it's not true, but I don't think it's honest. I think the people that you see wearing masks still anonymous are people who are afraid of getting the virus, and that is their right, and nobody should make fun of them, nobody should challenge them um, or, or say anything whatsoever. If you want to wear a mask, God bless you. If you don't want to wear a mask, God bless you. It was interesting, just before I got this question, uh, I saw in the news article that a federal judge overturned the extension on the mask mandate on uh, public travel, airplanes and buses and uh, trains and things like that. So if this stands, of course, um, we will no longer praise the Lord, have to wear masks on airplanes. Um, so that's the state of things right now. Good question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Jerry. He says, in the parable of the prodigal son, it seems to me like the obedient son got no reward for being faithful to his father. Doesn't what we do matter? You know, Jerry, the 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 brother of the prodigal, um, his reward, and, and his father made it very clear in the parable, uh, you have always been my son. You've always been with me. You've been able to eat at my table. You've been able to, to, to enjoy the, the, the all of the benefits of being a son because you've always been a son. But your brother, who was lost, has now been found, and we're rejoicing over that. So, um, Jerry, it, it's it's a misunderstanding to think that he got no reward. He never lost anything. He was always with his father. And, of course, this is a parable about our relationship with God. You know, the, the if, if there are two sons in a family and one of them rebels against God, he's out there on his own. And, and like the, the, the prodigal son, he's going to get crushed in a world. The son who remains with his father, he doesn't get anything extra for being with his father because being with the father is the reward. And and we, we now know, of course, the obedient son, or you call him obedient, wasn't being obedient at all because his heart was so far away from the heart of his father. We would say so far away from the heart of God. Uh, he was jealous. He was um, um, angry. Um, he was selfish rather than being selfless. He was selfish and he was only concerned about him. He didn't even care really that his brother had returned home. And that's the real problem in the parable. It's also the problem with a lot of us. As to your question, Jerry, doesn't what we do matter? Of course what we do matters, but it has nothing to do with being saved. And I think that we have a problem Jerry, and I would refer you to Luke chapter 17. Um, read the first 10 verses when Jesus tells us uh, another parable about what a servant really is. We don't get rewarded for doing what we're supposed to do. The opportunity to do it, to be with with our Jesus, to, to serve him, to be filled with his spirit, that's our reward. It's not like we do something good and God God says, oh, I'm so blessed by you. 
No, that's what we're supposed to do. And in Luke chapter 17, in that parable, um, the, the servant who uh, is waiting on his master um, is only doing his duty. And there's no reward for doing your duty. So what we do matters, Jerry. But it only matters in terms of enhancing our relationship with God. Certainly, that was not the point that Jesus was making. One of the comments on this, Jerry, and for everybody else, you know, when people have good things happen to them, we need as Christians to be able to rejoice for them and with them. You know, the the Christian that says, um, um, well, I'm not being blessed. That's a Christian with a heart problem. You know, for years I had people telling me, and, and, and every church has this, but we've had women who have a hard time conceiving every Mother's Day. Um, there's always some sad people. They, they've, they've lost uh, babies in the womb, or, or they, they want a child and can't conceive one. And I've had people come to me and say, well, well, we shouldn't risk hurting their feelings by having a Mother's Day. No, no, no. Just the opposite is true. The problem is the people who can't rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We're supposed to mourn with people who are mourning, and we're supposed to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. So as Christians, it's our responsibility, even in our own sadness. We've got to be able to rejoice over the the good fortune or the blessing of God that other people get. So I hope that answers your question, Jerry. It's a good one. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. We'd love to have your live calls and questions. Toll free is 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Gregory. Uh, He said, can you discuss the deconverting or deconstructing of faith I read about on the internet so much these days? Uh, Gregory, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, you know what I'm going to say first before I address your question. Don't spend so much time on the internet. Please open your Bible. Let the Lord speak to your heart. But, you know, we we read about these things and the enemy plants these seeds in our brain. Um, Yeah, let me discuss the deconstructing is, I think, the term that is most often used. Um, There's a generation of people. Uh, And by the way, it's spreading to older people as well. But there's a generation of people that are reexamining the faith, once for all delivered for the saints. Now, I, I put it in those terms because once for all delivered for the saints means that whatever generation you grow up in, the faith never changes. Expressions of faith do. Um, you know, things with a little bit more contemporary style of worship um, in, in the 21st century. Um, but but the faith has never changed from the day the church was born um, in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came into the world to the very day that I'm doing this program right now. It's never changed. And because it's unchanging, we can't try to change it, which is what deconstructing faith is. So here's what people are doing, and this is what you're reading about. You're having people who want to be Christians, who doesn't want to be Christian because everybody wants to go to heaven, but they don't like what the Bible says. And so what they're doing is trying to re-examine. They're they're looking for loopholes in the scriptures. They're trying to re-examine their faith, and they're trying to divorce the faith that they want to embrace from the faith that they were taught and the faith that the Bible teaches. And it's the most dishonest approach to God of all. There is not a single virtue in this. Not a single virtue. So deconstructing your faith is simply saying, okay, I want to be gay and be a Christian. I still want to go to heaven. I want to, I'm a boy, but I feel like I want to be a girl. Um, I want to sin. Um, My girlfriend and I, uh, my boyfriend and I, we want to keep having sex. So what they do is they invent a faith of their own that says they can do whatever they want to do, that God understands, that God is compassionate. Um, so so that's what the deconstructing is, Gregory. Uh, and as I said, it is dishonest. It is heretical. Um, the emphasis being the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And it's something that we who are real believers have got to resist. 
These are men and women, younger and older now, who are trying to separate their faith from the Bible. And you just can't do it and still have any semblance of genuine faith. So that's the important thing, Gregory, and um, it's just, it just it's appealing emotionally. Who doesn't want a God that we can make in our own image? Who doesn't want a God who will let me do whatever it is I want to do and still be confident that I'm going to heaven? And yet that's exactly what's being done. Final thought on this, Gregory, is this is the uh, sort of the pedal to the metal stage uh, in the world that we live in to the great falling away or to the apostasy. Uh, The word of God is being trampled on, being thrown away, being disregarded. And this is the beginning of that great falling away that must occur before the Lord comes. And we're seeing it in numbers now like at no other time in church history. The, the Bible means nothing. And, of course, we know the Bible doesn't save us, but the Bible tells us who the one really is who can save us. People say, do you have to be a, a, a read the Bible to be a Christian? No, but you don't know who Christ is if you don't read your Bible. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in this Monday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our monday show 340-9585 my friend cindy called on line one cindy thanks for calling you're on the air hi pastor ron I have probably a really odd question, and forgive me if it's a real ridiculous one. I don't mean it to be as ridiculous as I think it probably is. But when they laid Jesus in the tomb, it doesn't say they they didn't wrap him up. They didn't have time to like wrap him up like a mummy or anything like like they do when they put people in a tomb. Was he just like wrapped in a in just a, a cloth or a cloth put on him? Do you think? And the reason I'm asking this is that I watched The Passion of the Christ again, and at the very, very end, they show a picture of him, and he's not walking, but, you know, it's like a still motion. And it shows his hand, and it has a hole in it, and you can see through the hole. Now, the rest of him, it shows part of his leg, but he didn't have a robe on. And I'm wondering, did somebody leave? Did You know the angels that were, that were sitting by the tomb, when when the lady showed up, I wonder if somebody brought him a change of clothes or, or <laughs> left him something, you know, something to wear. Because when he saw Mary Magdalene in, and she thought he was a gardener, he had to have been dressed. So that that's kind of my kind of my oddball question is where did he get something to wear? And if it was God that gave him something to wear, do you suppose it was like heavenly fabric type of thing? Because he went through <laughs> walls and just, you know, appeared appeared in people's places and so anyways forgive me for this being so crazy but um that's that's not an oddball question yeah not an oddball question at all cindy thank you i'm gonna get off and listen i'm gonna listen on the radio hi nice service yesterday oh thank you thank you very much we have to remember that jesus was the creator of the world of everything that's been created he created it he could created a tuxedo to come out of that tomb if he wanted to. But let's get to some of the details. We know that there was no time to prepare his body for burial uh, on the day he was crucified. They had to rush to get in before nightfall. Remember, the next day actually starts, the Sabbath actually would start at at, at dark. And so um, they had to hurry up and get him into the tomb. Um, so we know there was 75 pounds of spices that were brought by uh, Nicodemus. 
So his body was was um, um, wrapped in or laid under um, those spices. Um, we know the ladies were coming back the next morning to finish the job, and they would have wrapped him like a mummy would be wrapped, uh, but there would have been preservatives and, and the spices, of course, are involved there as well. Um, so what they did when they took him down from the cross, when Joseph uh, had his body brought to the tomb, um, there would have been, been burial cloth. We know there were two separate cloths. Now, one of the things, you want to be careful watching The Passion of the Christ. It's, it's very Catholic, and there's, there's a bunch of, of, of unbiblical stuff in there. So the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, when we piece together the events, we know what happened. We know there were two pieces. And by the way, the Shroud of Turin, which people say was Jesus' burial cloth, cannot be his burial cloth. Because it wasn't one piece, it was two. And when, when they walked into the tomb, they found that Jesus' burial cloth, and it was just these loosely wrapped uh, cloths uh, that would have wrapped around whatever the clothes he was wearing, his, his midriff, of course, covered, but um, uh, would have been wrapped loosely around him, and then there one covering his head. And when they entered the tomb, they found out that they were separate, the the the, the cloth that covered his face was neatly folded. The napkin was neatly folded um, and left behind. So um, we don't have to guess at all. He, he had a burial cloth. He was not uncovered in the tomb. He had a burial cloth. And when he left the tomb, uh, remember, he didn't need the angel to roll away the stone. Um, that was done by the power of God. Uh, and when he appeared, he was dressed appropriately for whatever the 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 occasion. I always I I just think it's funny, Cindy, that uh, when she Mary Magdalene thought he was a gardener, he must have looked outwardly like a gardener, and certainly she didn't expect to see him there. So that was just a conclusion her mind jumped to. Now, this, the holes in his hand. Now I I don't. It, the pictures that you get in the movies of a perfect hole, you can see all the way through it. I, that wasn't the case at all. Um, there were holes in his hand, but it would have been a bloody mess. I mean, it would have been a bloody mess. And uh, he, yes, he still bore those. We know that because when he appeared to the Emmaus Road disciples, they had no idea who he was until they sat down and he broke bread with them. And then their eyes were opened and it would have been open when he passed the bread to them. Um, imagine one hand with a piece of bread and another with a piece of bread. He hands it to you and you take bread and then you see those scars in the hands. So we know that the scars were there and they will remain there forever and ever. Good question, Cindy. I don't think your questions are crazy at all. I like the way you think. Here is a question from Eddie. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, I'm a new Christian. What must I do to break an ancestral curse from family members in the past? Eddie, if you're a new believer, if you're truly born again, you already broke all those ties to the past. And, and that's my way of saying what I always answer generational curse questions with is there is no such thing. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone, I'm going to make this personal for you, Eddie. If Eddie is in Christ, Eddie is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And it's not like you're a new improved version of the old Eddie. You're a completely new Eddie. And you're being remade in the image of God. So why do you think you have to do anything to break an ancestral curse? especially when they don't even exist. Now, this crazy charismatic nonsense. Now, Eddie, I don't know where you read this in a book or maybe at church people are talking about it. Well, if you're finding this at church, you're going to a really, really unhealthy church. There's no such thing as ancestral curses or generational curses, period. It goes back to Exodus chapter twenty. When God says, I will curse uh, three to four generations of people who hate me. Eddie, do you hate God? 
Of course not. You're a new Christian. But it will extend grace to a thousand generations of those who love me. And that's just hyperbole to say, look, you're going to live in a cursed world. You're going to repeat the sins and the and the, the, the difficulties of the people that you grew up with. And, and those tendencies passed down from generation to generation. But the moment that grace arrives, then those old habits are broken because they're sins that have been forgiven. So, Eddie, I'm grateful you're a new Christian born again. But now it's important that you make sure you're in a solid Bible-teaching church where you're going to get solid, sound doctrine. And this crazy nonsense that comes out of these overly charismatic and mostly faith and prosperity churches regarding generational curses is nothing more than a way to escape personal responsibility for your sins. So, Eddie, it doesn't matter if people in your family in the past were witches or Satan worshipers. None of that matters at all. If you're now in Christ, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It doesn't say greater is he who is in you than the other he who is in you. So please just flush that out of your brain. There's no such thing as generational curses, period. And in the same way, Eddie, because this will be coming as well, you can't be inhabited by demons if you are a true believer. So remember that because God set you free not bound by the things that anybody else has done in the past. Here's a question from Bruce. He says, a leader in my church is having terrible marriage issues. How can I help him and should he remain in leadership? Um, Bruce, make yourself available to him. I love your heart. You want to help this man. Uh, I hope he's open to being helped. But the way you help him is to convince him that he needs to step down from leadership and make sure that he's a leader in his home and that his wife feels loved and and feels appreciated. Um, um, he needs to be a servant in his own home. So um, just lovingly go to him and say, bro, I know things are hard. I want to help. But right now, you've got to turn all of your attention on making sure your marriage is solid because there's not going to be any future ministry if your own house is broken. Paul says if a man can't manage his own household, how can he be trusted with the the house of God? And I think that's something we've got to remember. Um, At our church, Bruce, and and this is the only one I'm responsible for, um, all of my pastors know Every one of them knows that if their marriage goes sideways or if, if it hits these bumps in the road, um, that they're going to sit down for, be set down for a while. Not as a punishment, but to enable them to correct. Um, you, you, you can't teach the Word of God. Uh, you can't minister to others if the ministry in your own home is failing. So that is an immediate disqualification. Not forever. But it's an immediate disqualification uh, until that marriage is back on solid ground. That's how important it is. So God bless you for wanting to help him. Um, but but um, no, he should not remain in leadership. And uh, you, you will be helping him if you can convince him of that, Bruce. I had somebody say one time, well, what if it's not my fault? What if it's her fault? Well, to quote the old movie, Leadership, I'm sorry, uh, um, uh, is, uh, I'm sorry. What, what's the word? Oh, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, it's a reflection of leadership. Any man that is um, not satisfied with who his wife is is probably guilty of misrepresenting Jesus to her. So I hope that's okay. Here's a question I got. This is maybe over a week ago. 
Gary says, Pastor Ron, I was listening to a podcast called R-Rated Christianity by a former politician in San Antonio. It gets pretty raunchy. Can I have your thoughts, please? Um, Gary, I, I, I've not heard of this until I got your question, and I did look it up, and I actually listened to maybe 10 minutes of a couple of of the the podcast just to find out what you are. I know the, the politician, and since he's put it out there, I can put it out there. It's Nico LaHood, who is a Christian. He professes a faith in Christ. He talks very openly about his faith in Christ. Um, but... The purpose of this show, he says, is to get real. Our rated Christianity is for a real world, and we live in the real world. We've got to be real with people. That's not being real. That's just being raunchy. And uh, it has no place in the life of a, of a man of God. Words like the words I heard on that podcast should never come from the lips of a man of God or a woman of God, for that matter. Um, the idea that, well, i got to be real, it's usually just a gimmick. Now, I have no reason to question um, Mr. LaHood's um, heart for the Lord, um, but, but, but he is either mistaken terribly, let no coarse communication come from your mouth, the Bible says, uh, or he's just trying to be cool and get an audience. And there's always a group of people, group of, of Christians, that, that this kind of raunch appeals to. Well, it doesn't matter. What's the big deal? They're just words. And, but, but you see, we, we as Christians, it's our responsibility to be submitted to our Christ. And Jesus said that we need to be different. And if Mr. LaHood really wants to help people, he'd help them to be more like Jesus instead of giving them an excuse to be more like people in the world. It just shouldn't be um, that way for, for believers. Gary, it is a really frustrating thing for me as a pastor um, to hear Christians use ugly language. It really is. They'll say, well, no, it's real and it's raw and it's authentic. Well, none of that's true. Because real isn't raw at all. Real, being real with Christ makes us more like Jesus. Can you imagine those words ever coming out of the mouth of Jesus? And yet we do it. Now, I know pastors who will occasionally curse from the pulpit. And they think it just makes them cool. It makes them raunchy. And, um, Gary, there's no place for it in the mind and the heart of a Christian. Let me share a quick story. i got nobody waiting on, on the line. Um, my previous life, I was a, a college baseball player, um, uh, played baseball from the time I could walk. Um, then I went to college, and then um, when being a professional baseball player didn't work out, um, I got in the car business. Uh, and my language was horrible. I got saved just before I turned 40 years of age. And up until that moment I got saved, my mouth was foul. Just really, really foul. But Gary, when I met Jesus, I knew that had to change. Now, I didn't really do anything. I met Jesus, and I wanted to be like him. So I just stopped cussing. I just stopped cussing. I've cussed one time in the 31 years I've been saved. And that it shocked me to death. didn't shock Jesus, but it shocked me. And it was one of those moments where I was warned by the Holy Spirit. Oh, you, you've got it all together yet. That word came out of you because it was in you. Um, and, and it so distressed me, it broke me, that when that word came out of my mouth, and it was in a really embarrassing situation as well, when that word came out of my mouth... I I just Lord I begged him I don't I don't ever want anything like that to come out of my mouth again. I remember saying, "Well, Jesus, you said what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. It's in the heart." So, Lord, fix my heart. But until my heart is fixed, until I'm better, then help me to stop. Spirit of God, help me to stop the word before it comes out of my mouth and embarrass you and me. And he's done that, and I've cussed one time in the 31 years I've been a Christian. And for people to think this is a way to be cool 
a way to get an audience. All it is is a misrepresentation of our King and Lord. And it is inexcusable. Um, What we say does matter. James says, brothers, out of the same mouths come blessings and cursings. Now he's not talking about swear words like we use it. But in other words, how can filth come out of a mouth that worships God? And so, Gary, this is just something that we've got to um, resist being drawn in by. Uh, I know if I started listening to that, um, and if I listened to it for a length of time, those words would all come flooding back into my brain, and Satan would be there pushing those buttons, trying to get him out. I'll close with this, Gary. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 says, But now, because you're Christian, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthier coarse language from your lips. So I rest my case, Gary. The Word of God, as always, settles the issue. Thanks for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. The, the, the brain fade that I had just a moment ago, the movie was Remember the Titans. And, and it was, uh, the, the, the quote was, attitude reflects leadership, Captain. And that's never changed. So that was from the other one. Thanks, Gary. Here is a question from Derek. He says, I struggle with not having sex. I want to honor God, but I can't believe that sex is wrong. It was a gift from God. I don't know anyone nowadays who refrains. Derek, I don't know you, but I've had almost this exact statement made to me dozens of times by people who claim to be Christians. So here's the thing you got to understand, Derek. You don't have a choice. If you're really a Christian, you won't have sex. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And that means knowing it's wrong, if you choose to do it anyway, you don't really love Jesus. And in this matter of sex, what you really love is you. This is just about you. So, Derek, everybody struggles with not having sex. Imagine the 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 the, the homosexual or the same-sex attracted man or woman. And we say to them, without even thinking about it, well, you can't have sex with somebody of the same gender. That's a sin. But you see, their feelings don't just turn off. So we all struggle with that especially once we've tasted that forbidden fruit. So here's the thing. You don't have a choice. If you're a Christian, you will say no to you and yes to God. And that means you can't have sex. And the fact that you say, I can't believe that sex is wrong because everybody does it these days, all that's saying is you don't really care what God says. You're just trying to find a loophole so that you can do what you want to do to satisfy your body. We should control our bodies unlike those passionate heathens or lustful heathens, the Bible says. So it's that simple. Derek, it's a choice. Line drawn in the sand. you got to make that call. Let's go to Caesar on line one. Caesar, good to hear from you. Thank you for calling. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, Pastor, sorry about that. Um, I had a question for you, and I'm unsure if it's in the Bible. If it's not, I just wanted your opinion. Um, in Genesis, it's in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, my question is, mm-hmm. when God created the heavens and the earth, I'm assuming he's outside the heavens and the earth. And throughout the Bible, it mm-hmm. talks about God dwelling in the heavens. So just what's your answer on where was he at before, and why did he dwell in the heavens now, and all that? I'm just super confused. Okay, I can do that, and I have to do it quickly because we're running out of time. Thank you very, very much, Caesar. Um, uh, now, by definition, God was not outside the heavens and the earth because there were no heavens and the earth. Um, but God has always lived in the same place. Now, we know from Second Corinthians 12 where that is. And I mean, when I say where, we know it's up. We know it's beyond the first heaven or the atmosphere that we breathe. We know it's beyond the second heaven because that's what we would call outer space, the the galaxies and, and everything that we, we can see by telescope now. 
And the third heaven is beyond that. So it's beyond our atmosphere. It's beyond um, the, the, uh, the, the outer space. And it's a place, uh, the dwelling place of God. Uh, and it's always been there. And that's where Jesus is right now. So when he made the heaven and the earth, um, and of course we know Jesus was the agent. He was the agent used to create everything that was created. Um, God the Father never moved from his place um, in the third heaven or beyond the heaven's heavens, and that's a description. So he's always been there, um, and and God didn't make an appearance to the earth until Jesus um, became flesh. So in the beginning, God, whether it's Genesis 1-1 or John chapter 1, um, Jesus has always been God's ambassador here. When God visited the earth, it was in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, he, he had created angels, of course. They visit the earth as his emissaries as well. But God lives um, outside of everything that we can see. And uh, that's the place that Paul describes. Well, he doesn't really describe it. He says, uh, I saw things there. I was taken there. And I saw things there that man is not permitted to tell. But they were remarkable things, things that were so magnificent. But he was in the presence of God uh, as he was taken. It was at that time in Lystra where he was stoned to death. And and uh, in that, that moment of death, and, and Paul really died there, uh, he was taken to heaven where he saw inexpressible things. And that's where God lives, Caesar. Good question. I appreciate it very, very much. But just remember, um, God is omnipotent. He's everywhere at the same time. That's what his spirit does for us now. Hey, thanks for tuning into the program today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember, tonight we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. God willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.